Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Many teenagers struggle with body image insecurities, and often parents feel frustrated and are overwhelmed in helping their children develop healthy relationships in all aspects of their lives. If you focus on brain health to be the motivation to make healthy choices in your daily habits, this is likely to promote a healthy body image. Chris Loper is a writer, tutor, and habit coach, and the creator of Becoming Better, a blog focused on self-improvement that actually works. He works with families to adjust the home environment, the language they use, and their own choices in order to influence their children. I love this quote, you've got your whole life ahead of you. It's okay to go slowly. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. And you recently had a wedding. Congratulations and back from your honeymoon. Yeah, thank you. And you mentioned you had gone to Canada. May I ask which part? Uh, We uh, went to Harrison Lake in British Columbia and then Sun Peaks Resort and then Vancouver on our way home back to Seattle. Lovely. I have now some new places on my list of places to travel. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris, I want to get right into asking you why teenagers, why families, and why do you particularly focus on brain health in regards to behavioral change? Yeah, um, well, I spent my 20s taking a really taking poor care of myself. Uh, I was living hedonistically as a ski bum bartender. Uh, I exercised often. but I ate junk food all the time, especially sugar. Uh, and I have ADHD, which I wasn't managing at all. Um, my sleep patterns were terrible. I stayed up really late um, and would get up really late. Um, but being, uh, you know, like I worked in restaurants and, uh, and so I was able to get by, you know, uh, having a wandering attention and being kind of hyperactive actually fits pretty well with restaurant work. Mm-hmm. And I was having a blast. And so uh, I felt like I was doing well. But then I suffered a string of injuries that left me unable to continue that lifestyle. I could no longer work on my feet. I could no longer enjoy my favorite activities like skiing and hiking and climbing. And the turmoil that followed revealed that I had a lot of issues. Career-wise, I had no backup plan and no prospects. Uh, Personally, I had very weak willpower, and I had a lot of trouble focusing. Being injured meant I couldn't exercise, and that made my ADHD way worse. And my mental health just rapidly deteriorated. Um, As my fun lifestyle evaporated, uh, anxiety and depression kind of took center stage. I wasn't taking good care of myself physically or psychologically, so 
my injuries weren't healing and my mental health just kept getting worse. And then mm-hmm. instead of facing my problems head on, I dealt with them by drinking and getting high. So I became an expert on brain health and behavioral change out of pure personal necessity. Turning my life around required learning the neuroscience of changing your brain, strategies for enhancing my willpower, techniques for habit formation, and ways to overcome procrastination and perfectionism. So I began applying these ideas diligently using strategy. And over the last eight years, I've healed my injuries and strengthened my mind. And the strategies and techniques that I learned and and use, they're basically universal. They help pretty much everyone. So I've become really passionate about sharing what I've learned with everyone, um, but particularly with students and young adults, because when I finally learned this stuff in my early 30s, I kept thinking, oh, why didn't anyone tell me this? you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have lived so much better. Yeah. And it's amazing when things like injuries or other life defining moments, when they really halt us and force us, it's not even sometimes we want to, but it forces to rethink things and to change the narrative in our minds. But you almost want to push ahead so quickly, but you're not able to. And I think human beings, the way lifestyles are right now, the way mindsets are, it's just you want to keep pushing ahead and you want to keep pushing ahead. And any obstacle becomes a big source of frustration. And so in your case, you really had to sit with those very uncomfortable feelings, which I think now makes your work even more powerful and relatable because unless you've gone through it, it is very hard to relate. Right. Yeah. And I know... We're talking about teenagers today, and we know teenagers often are very present and they don't are not thinking, and this just has to do with their brain development. Mm-hmm. But the long-term consequences and their future, they're just thinking about the current present moment. Right. And they often think that the way they are now is the way they're just going to be forever, mm-hmm. which is what we call having a fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset where you understand that you're capable of growth and change and improvement. So, you know, my students are often surprised when I tell them like, no, I was a lot like you when I was your age. Like I have ADHD and I didn't want to do homework. I just wanted to go play with my friends and play video games. And they're like, really? You seem so, you know, organized and mature and put together. I'm like, well, I, you know, I worked on it and grew up and, and, you know, you can too. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and I, actually, I'm sure that's one of the things that you developed over time, the difference between working with adolescents and teenagers versus adults, and the language that you have to use, and the certain skill sets that are required to make that deeper connection with them. Mm-hmm. Yes. My work with students is always almost always long-term and slow, because that's the only, you have to build a relationship and develop trust because they're used to grown-ups just kind of judging them and telling them what to do which anyone who's you know ever interacted with a teenager should know it doesn't work um 
So that game is that that's a very slow um, rapport building kind of game. Um, and the habit coaching I do with adults is is very short term and quick. Usually it's, you know, uh, a couple months to maybe half a year of, of interaction. And the adults who work with me are just hungry for mm-hmm. strategies and they're they're ready to just have me tell them how to do it. Whereas teenagers, you know, they need to be guided slowly. Mm-hmm. And we know teenagers like to question everything, right? And you need mm-hmm. to either have the answers or be honest enough to say that I don't know the answer yet because they can really see through the authenticity and the facade and just like they will challenge you at your core. Oh yeah. I like to say that a teenager can smell hypocrisy a mile away. (laughs) Yes. Because even if, you know, a parent tells them, Hey, you, you know, you're on your phone too much. And, and they're like, yeah, but you're on your phone too much too, mm-hmm. you know, even though maybe the parents on their phone a lot because they're doing work email or something productive. Teenagers don't see it that way. Yes. They see it as someone on their phone. And they're like, well, I want to be on my phone too, you know. And they're absolutely right. I mean, they're just calling it out as they see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, Speaking of teenagers, you recently published an article titled Ditch Body Image Issues by Focusing on Brain Health. And we know that's one of the, if not the number one challenge that parents see with their children is this relationship that they have with their bodies. Can you tell us about that article and the thought process behind it and what you learned writing it? Yeah. So uh, every summer I co-teach a course called Parenting for Academic Success. And uh, in the first class, we talk a lot about um, brain health. So we, we talk about sleep and nutrition and exercise. And a parent uh, brought up a question. You know, they were concerned that talking about eating well and, and exercise uh, with their teenage daughters would trigger body image insecurities. And that was just a really good point. It's a it's a genuinely valid concern that we hadn't really considered. Um, many teenage girls struggle with body image issues, and this can lead to low self-esteem, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. And it made me realize that we could skirt around that whole issue and still encourage healthy habits by focusing exclusively on brain health. So most people don't think much about how food and exercise impact their brain function. They only think about how these healthy behaviors impact the body. You know, we, you know, eat salad and and exercise because it's going to help me live longer and healthier, or it's going to make me lose weight or get fit. And those things are fine, but, um, I think brain health is a more powerful motivator and a better place to focus because it's just a really big deal. If you eat well and work out regularly, you're going to see enormous brain benefits. A healthy lifestyle like that makes you smarter, more creative, better at focusing, and even happier. So I really want to encourage parents to approach healthy habits from the angle of brain health, instead of talking about 
you know, getting fit or losing weight or even being like physically healthy, I want them to focus on the brain benefits. Yes. And I wholeheartedly believe in that same connection in terms of what is it doing for your brain and your body, but not in terms of what other people see, but it's how you feel on the inside. Right, right. Um, um, and another huge component of brain health is sleep. And um, the, you know, people today are really, really struggling with sleep, yes. largely because of screens. Um, and the standard thing that you parents the way they approach this is, you know, tech is bad. Screens are bad. Your kid has a problem. Like, you know, they judge their children for being addicted to screens and being on them too late at night. Instead, I think it would be better if parents acknowledged that like, this is the world we gave them and, you know, it's not their fault. Um, and then kind of model shutting down their own screens as bedtime approaches. And if, you know, they talk about why they're doing it, talk about it in terms of, well, this is going to help me go to sleep and have a better day tomorrow because I need good sleep to, you know, to keep my brain healthy. Yes. And that language that we use is so critical because we really need to. And I've been there many times. I actually just did it the other day, even though I knew I was using the wrong language, but <laughs> trying to take away that blaming and that guilt and that projection onto our kids, but almost reframing it in a way of how does this impact you? How does this impact me when I have those same habits, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and getting to it at that level. Yeah. Which... Actually, Chris brings me to my next question. So you've worked with so many different families. And we know with parenting, it really brings to the surface a lot of our own insecurities, fears, anxiety is such a huge word that I think with the pandemic especially has really become like the word of the day. A lot of people walking around living with anxiety more than ever before. Mm -hmm. What are some factors that you feel have exacerbated those already existing challenges of parenting a tween or teen? Hmm. Yeah, I think that there has long been sort of a, a, a model where we can push a lot of um, parenting, difficult, difficult parenting duties off to schools and the teachers who work there. And then during the pandemic, when suddenly it was like, no, you're at home with your kids all day. Um, it brought to light the notion is like, oh, we have to, there's, we might have to do this ourselves. And that's really, really hard. And we weren't really prepared to do that. And we don't necessarily know how to interact with um, our children or our teenagers in a way that's effective. Um, I like to say that a teenager is like a Chinese finger trap where kind of the intuitive thing is to pull and that just makes it worse. So when you like tell kids what to do, especially teenagers, they tend to resist and do the opposite. Yes. Um, and, and then parents go like, okay, so if that doesn't work, what do I do? 
and you watch your children making, you know, imperfect choices, being maybe irresponsible, you, you get afraid that they're like closing doors for themselves, for their future. Like, oh, they, they're going to fail this class. Then they're going to not get into this college and they're not going to have this career. And you kind of quickly and easily just catastrophize, you know, little things. Um, so what I've been, what I work with parents, it's often on, okay, there is a middle ground between like micromanaging everything they do and telling them what to do and like doing nothing because you don't want to be hands off, but you also can't do everything for them and be all up in their business all the time. You got to find that healthy middle ground. Yes. And do you think that goes back to trusting yourself to be that parent that you want to be? I often feel like when we're acting a certain way, it's to do with how much we are trusting our own instincts, how much we believe in ourselves to do that, quote unquote, a good job. Yeah, yeah, because we we would see our kids as like a representation of ourselves. And so if our child does poorly in some way, we'd see it as a, a reflection on our own abilities as a parent and our own just, you know, quality as a person. And so one reason parents are really quick to intervene and micromanage and, and rescue their kids from little failures is because they don't want to be, they don't want to feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we need to do is like have faith that our kid will learn from their mistakes if we give them the space to make those mistakes and that they will grow through failure and that we need to like we need to be strong enough as individuals in our own self-esteem to let that happen and not worry about how we might be judged. Yes, which I think is the hardest job to do, right? Is to do your own inner work before mm-hmm. being able to be successful in every aspect of your life. And so I think as parents, we know so this is what I want to ask you. You've worked with parents who mm-hmm. people often have that, and I don't want to say awareness, but do they often confess that um, this lack of trust or this level of micromanaging that they do for their teenagers has to do with the fact that they don't believe that they're being good enough parents? Or is it to do with the fact that it's just so hard to be a parent these days because there's so many uncertainty and there are so many other factors that are influencing their child. So they almost feel like they don't have enough control. Yeah, I think um, I think in a really genuine way, parents are fighting an uphill battle. Um, if you're trying to encourage your child to develop a growth mindset, you're fighting an uphill battle against our culture. Um, if you're trying to encourage a healthy lifestyle, um, one that would promote brain health, you're fighting an enormously uphill battle because, you know, sugary processed foods are everywhere and we are all, you know, bombarded with um, electronics that make us sleep poorly and, 
you know, it's always going to be easier to have French fries than have a salad or watch TV than go for a walk. Um, so there is this huge uphill battle that parents are facing. And every time they're doing these kind of what I would call kind of over parenting, the micromanaging, the rescuing, that's always coming from a place of love. It's always because they want what's best for their kids. And they're afraid of what will happen if they let go and um, step back. Mm-hmm. And going, but yeah, yeah, no, I, that's so fascinating. I'm just taking it all in as you're saying that is the letting go part that can feel very scary, right? It's it is it is genuinely scary because you have to let go before they demonstrate that they're ready because they won't become ready until they're forced to. Maybe one child out of 10 is that kind of super responsible kid who really proves to you that they've got it all under control before you ever have to think about letting go. But nine out of 10 kids are going to seem like they're not mature enough and not responsible enough to handle things on their own. But we have to start stepping back so that they are forced into the role of being responsible because that's when you build the brain muscles for that. Yes. And something I think about, I have a preteen, but she's definitely getting into that Mm -hmm. stage of life, right? Where there will be much more influence from the external world. And I was thinking about how this ties into, and you've blogged about this, the daily stoicism and how there are these factors that I would say get thrown at us, not even that we get pulled into that help sort of uh, it's like a craving, right? It's a, it's a way to feel different than we currently do. So I think some of the yeah. things that were talked about are things like nutrition, like you talked about with certain cravings and desire for mm-hmm. certain foods with social media. Why are we, for example, drawn to Facebook or over exercising? Mm-hmm. And these all have to do with just not so much that there's something lacking in our lives, but we just want to feel differently than when, how we do. And I think this really ties into teenagers too and being drawn to a lot of these different things that we feel may be like an addiction. But mm-hmm. really going back to that idea of the brain, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. We. This is an idea from James Clear, um, who has a great blog and he wrote Atomic Habits. Uh, he said that you know any craving we have for something unhealthy is really just at its root, a desire to feel different and really to feel better than we currently feel. And so we, we are drawn to a lot of um, unhealthy things just out of a desire to change our state. Um, And so I think the way to combat that is um, for me, it's a combination of, uh, stoicism and buddhism where in in kind of both you you learn to accept your current state and accept how you feel right now um whether it's pleasant or unpleasant rather than trying to resist reality and resist what you're experiencing um so 
you know, for example, yesterday we we got stuck trying to cross the border back from Canada and it took two and a half hours of kind of waiting in line in 90 degree heat. And, you know, the natural thing to do there would be to get really upset and to crave something to change your state. Um, and the, you know, the stoic practice is like, okay, well, this is what is. And so we're going to deal with it and accept it and make the most of it. And so we could, we were able to, you know, sit there with patience and, um, and read a book. Mm -hmm. And something we know as parents is that we're the grown up, we're the role models, whether we feel comfortable or not for our children, because they're watching and listening to everything. Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk about role modeling because that's a really important thing to talk about here. What oh, are yeah. the do's and don'ts that you speak to parents about in terms of their role as a role model? Yeah. So first I'll set up like why role modeling is the way to go. So I want everyone to imagine um, talking to your teenager about brain health and saying to them something like, you know, if you ate less junk food and exercised more, your brain would work a lot better. That's not going to go well. It's true that eating less junk food and exercising more would improve their brain function, but you can't just call someone out like that because one, it feels very judgmental. And two, nobody likes being told what to do, especially teenagers. And three, they're going to know that you don't do those things if you don't. Um, and they're going to think, well, what, what are you telling me? I need to improve my brain function. I'm fine. You know, they're going to get defensive and then they're going to start looking at all the ways that you don't do those things perfectly. So it's really, really ineffective and unhelpful to tell kids what to do way more powerful to lead by example. So if you start adjusting how you sleep, if you start exercising more regularly, if you start eating more healthy, then your life becomes this message. And, you know, if you're going to try to make those shifts, you got to recognize that's hard to do. And so you need to be strategic. So set up your home environment to make healthy choices easier. Like stock the pantry and the fridge with healthy food. Leave the junk food at the store. Save it for special occasions. Now, your kids might complain or ask where the cookies and the chips went. What happened to the ice cream? If they do, awesome because that's your opening to talk about brain health. But make it about you, not them. You're trying to eat better for your own brain health, and you don't want it to be an uphill battle. So that's why you've made those changes in the household. They get to hear that those things are about brain health, and they get to see a strategy for behavioral change in action. But at no point are you telling them what to do or judging them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those 
changes that we make for ourselves within our home have to do with the idea of getting into the flow. And that's something that you also blogged on that I thought was really fascinating, the flow, the psychology of the optimal experience. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and how that ties into anxiety? Sure. So flow is a state of mind where you get totally in the zone um, and you're just um, loving what you're doing, but what you're doing is difficult and meaningful. um, And while you're doing it, you know, you're not thinking about what other people are thinking. um, You're not worried about your performance. You're challenged, but you're just meeting the challenge. So that could be skiing, playing the piano, um, writing an essay. Um, you could get into flow in, in all kinds of states uh, or all kinds of activities. Um, it's a really positive state to be in and you can get into it while doing work that would otherwise just kind of feel like work, um, like doing math or um, you know, writing a paper for school and, you know, parents can model getting into flow, um, uh, by not multitasking. If you're, you can't get into flow if you split your attention. And, um, so you need to, and you can't get into flow, in like just a couple of minutes, you you have to spend some time building up like cognitive momentum. Um, so, you know, if you're a parent trying to show your kids about this, it's, you know, you can say, well, you know, I really, I don't like cleaning the garage. That's a big pain in the butt task, but if I, you know, leave my phone away and I put on some fun music and I get going for a while, then I do find that I get into the flow of it and I really actually enjoy getting it done. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the credibility, right, because we need to have credibility with our children in order to be an effective role model. And mm-hmm. I think part of that comes with having the qualities of being charismatic. I know sometimes we throw that word around in the outside world of a leader, but I really feel like as a parent, and if we want to be a leader in the household and someone that our kids look up to and respect, we need to have those certain qualities of being charismatic. And I love that um, the book that you had mentioned too, The Charisma Myth, talks Mm -hmm. about those three qualities of being present of having power and warmth. And I feel that so ties beautifully into the qualities that our kids look to us to be a good parent. And by good parent, Mm -hmm. I mean a parent that understands our child that connects deeply with our child. And is also the safe place children can go to if they feel the world is a scary place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Charisma is not just for, you know, leaders and, and movie stars. It's, it's an important and learnable set of skills. Um, You know, presence is that ability to be there in the moment and give someone your full attention, um, sort of make them feel like they're the only person in the room and certainly make them feel like they're 
your top priority in the moment. Um, easiest way to improve your game on that is to put your phone in airplane mode or and keep it out of sight mm-hmm. when you're having an interaction with someone. Um, power is basically confidence. Um, and that's one where parents usually have that the strongest just because they're, you know, bigger, older, they have the money, you know, they are the people who have the power in the household. Um, but you can also demonstrate power by making changes in your own behavior, you know, improving your own life and, and engaging in your own work and projects in a way that models growth. I think that models power in a way that's really healthy for kids to see. Would you also say admitting you've made a mistake? I know sometimes people see that as a sign of weakness, but now that we're talking, I would imagine that if you do admit mistakes and if you admit to a teenager, you know, I really don't know the answer to that, that actually Mm -hmm. gives you more power, not less. What would you say there? Yes. The intuitive thing is that like, no, if I, I want to be, I want to present as perfect because that's the best way to present myself, but it's not true. You're actually stronger when you're vulnerable and you own up to your mistakes and let people, especially your kids, see you struggle and see you deal with it. Um, So it's really critical that parents don't be perfect and don't try to pretend to be perfect. Let your kids see you fail. Talk to them about what's going poorly for you and let them see you struggling to be resilient and then being resourceful and strategic in order to overcome problems. Mm-hmm. Kids need to know that their own struggles are normal. Because when when you don't know any better and you're having a hard time with something, you think there's something wrong with you. Like you think you're broken or deficient in some way. And the reality is, no, you're just a human being dealing with a hard problem. You need to know that other people struggle too, that other people have had this basic same problem before, and there might be solutions out there. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Something, Chris, that my 10-year-old has told me, right, speaking of that mirroring or that teachable moment, is she said to me, and she said it on a few occasions, where she'll say, Mom, you're a grown-up. You know everything. You don't know what it's like to be a kid. And I had to stop myself and say, well, first of all, you're right. I don't know how to be a kid right now. I don't know how to be a 10-year-old in your body right now but I've been a 10 year old, but it's not the same thing I understand. And I said, also, I, there's so much I don't know. I said, I probably don't know more than I do know. And I said, for example, I don't know what, how to be a mom to be a 10 year old. I'm learning as I go too. And she sort of just stopped. And it was such a vulnerable moment for me because I thought I'm supposed to have the answer to what she's saying to me, but that was my answer. And I just had to be honest because there was no other time for me to say, I need to get back to you on that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. That's really good. 
Um, but they make a great us way right. To... <laughs> yeah, they make us think about it that way and admit our faults and our shortcomings, even right. if we want to or not. Yeah, but that's a really good demonstration from your daughter of how kids usually see adults mm-hmm. is they see us doing really difficult things with ease or with apparent ease. And the reality is that we are able to, you know, manage a busy, complicated adult life. One, because we've practiced with it over years. And two, because we have all kinds of strategies and tactics and tools that make it manageable. Mm -hmm. The problem is that a lot of our, these executive function tools wind up being invisible and um, kids don't get to see us using strategies and they don't get to hear us kind of talking to ourselves as we work through problems. So a great way for kids to see, to help kids see that like, no, we struggle and we use tools to overcome it is to be more open about those things not necessarily like talking to your kid about them, but maybe talking in the presence of your kid where they might happen to hear you or see you um, working through something. Mm-hmm. Whether that's talking to yourself or... Task. Yeah. yeah. And what about that last factor? So warmth, we know the definition of warmth, but how can we be warm when it comes to our connection with our children? Yeah. Um, So anytime your child is struggling or upset about something, we want to default to empathy and we got to start there. And sometimes in the moment, that's all we get to. What we always want to do is problem solve. Um, And when you're struggling with something and when you're, you know, emotionally upset, You don't want someone to solve your problem. You want someone to give you a hug. You want empathy and warmth. If someone jumps into problem solving immediately, then it feels like they're not really understanding you and they're not really giving you what you need. And if you're emotionally fired up, like you're not in a state of mind where you could process a solution. You're not ready for that. Um. So we need to just kind of meet kids where they are when they're having a hard time and empathize with them and let them know that we're here to help if they want it Um, and give them kind of an open invitation to talk it out or hear suggestions about what could be done, you know, without diving into a kind of force feeding them your solution. Mm Mm-hmm. So for families that are listening, and this is something that I'm going to remind myself in a moment where you feel like there's tension and turmoil, and of course that increases when your kids are teenagers. I mentioned mine are a little bit younger. I think it's important to keep in mind those three things, the presence, the power, and the warmth. And we know everything is a journey, so it's an ongoing process. It may not happen overnight, but those things I feel are effective strategies in order Mm -hmm. to be able to connect with our kids. Yes. 
Chris, I really want to focus on perfectionism, right? This is, we live in an era of perfectionism. It's everywhere. I feel Mm -hmm. the online world, the social media is a huge part of that. And I'm not just talking about like filters on Instagram, but it's all the Mm -hmm. blogs, the parenting, uh, the community boards, the well-meaning advice from friends, family, and strangers. So of course, our teenagers are bombarded with messages of perfectionism all the time. Uh, Let's talk about that, not just for teenagers, but parents alike. What can we do to reduce perfectionism? Yeah, okay, this is a really big one because perfectionism is really harmful. Um, It often causes procrastination um, because it's just the easiest way to avoid making a mistake is to not start. Um, it, It makes us give up on our goals instead of allowing ourselves to make incremental progress. It hurts our self-esteem, um, and obviously it's intimately connected with body image issues, eating disorders. Um, so first got to recognize there's just no such thing as perfect. Perfect is an ideal that you can work towards. See it as a guiding star. Um, so head in that direction as you strive to become better, but know that you're never going to get there. Um, second, it's okay to not be perfect about your own perfectionism, like be open about your own struggles with perfectionism, with the people around you, with your kids, let them see you and hear you kind of wrestle with it. And then let them see you overcome it with better self-talk and the use of strategy. The most powerful strategy I know for um, overcoming perfectionism is to keep your eyes on the process. So the old advice to keep your eyes on the prize Mm -hmm. turns out it's terrible advice. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to shoot the basket into the hoop while you're looking at the scoreboard. So, you know, don't focus on the outcome that you want to achieve. Instead, Put your attention on the work itself, on the steps involved, um, because that's what you can control, which is really like Stoicism 101, focus on what you can control. You know, you don't have control over the outcome of any situation, but you can control your choices and your actions. And then there are a couple of mindset pieces that will help you overcome perfectionism. One is the philosophy that everything counts. And this means that every step in the right direction is worthwhile. Like every tiny improvement is better than its opposite. So like in terms of the brain health stuff we were talking about, there are a thousand different things you can do to eat better, exercise more, sleep better. You don't have to do all of them all the time. Every single good choice helps. And then finally, we need to remember that we're human beings. And human beings are always imperfect. Um, one of my favorite teachers, Brian Johnson, says that you know, there's never been a perfect human. You're not going to be the first. So we all need to give ourselves and other people permission to be human 
And that means like, it's okay to screw up. It's okay to be a beginner. And what you'll find is if you give yourself permission to be human, your kids will have a much easier time giving themselves permission to be human. Mm -hmm. And in relation to this conversation about perfectionism and control and being human, something that I've researched and I've talked to a lot of parenting experts is that they will say in speaking with the teenagers and uh, young adults, the number one pressure that a lot of these teenagers and young adults feel from their parents is the academic pressure, which Mm -hmm. we know is huge, right? The college admission scandal highlighted a lot of those. (laughs) Um, What would be your words of advice or tips for parents who feel like if I don't put that academic pressure on my child, they will not succeed and therefore I failed as a parent? Um, I think the vast majority of students will naturally put enough academic pressure on themselves without any intervention from mom or dad. Um, Our system is designed to be extremely competitive and foster uh, a competitive mindset, um, which obviously is full of problems. But so parents don't necessarily need to play that role at all. I would much rather see parents um, helping foster greater curiosity and focusing any conversation around school on learning. So, you know, asking your kids about what they're learning in school rather than asking them how the test went or whether or not the project got done. Um, It turns out if you get your kids to talk about what they're learning, that is kind of a way of study and it will make their brains hold on to the information better and understand it more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, so it will probably impact their grades in a positive way. But if you set the bar as even a really high bar and say, you need to get A's. Um, and that was sort of the expectation when I was growing up. Well, I was like, cool. So the smart thing to do is do the absolute bare minimum to get a 93% in every class. Because any more than that would be extra work. That was a waste of my time. Which, like, yeah, okay, I got A's, but I could have learned the things more deeply and I could have engaged more curiosity if I had approached school with the goal of learning rather than with the goal of earning a letter. Yes, and I'm sure you've worked with kids who they're excellent students, but they still always feel like they're not enough or they're doing enough or they're not good enough. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had students who, who literally set the bar for themselves to get a hundred percent in every class. And anything short of that is in their mind, a failure. And they, they have, you know, 92, 95, 97 in their classes. And I'm like, so you're doing great. And they're like, no, I'm failing. Like, no, you're getting A's, you know, and that's just a symptom of how deeply ingrained perfectionism is in our society. And so in that case, which is a classic case, do you then start with work with the family or do you start with the child? What does that process look like? Um, That would typically come out through tutoring. 
um, work with the child. And so I will work with them in the moment. Um, but uh, any kind of perfectionism that that's, that's that severe is going to be associated with um, pretty serious anxiety and um, mental health issues. And so I definitely will engage with parents and make sure they're at least aware. And often that leads to some good conversations about strategies and resources. Um, and, and often we'll find they're aware and we're on the same page. It's just, it's been a long-term problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this great stuff that we talked about today, you have saved five minutes to work with a parent who sees you, they're anxious, they're feeling frustrated, they're feeling like they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. Where would you suggest they start? What would be sort of those like start this today and then build on this over the next mm. few weeks or months? Yeah, I would I would encourage them to well, that's hard. Um <laughs> I would encourage them to start paying attention to the way they talk with their kid. Um, The way that I'm able to have a positive influence on the students I work with is because we have a relationship of trust. And if you're a parent who's been struggling, you're not going to be in that place. You're going to be, you're probably coming into it with a lot of, combative interactions where you've been in arguments with your kids and you've been pushing and pulling them to do things and they've been resisting. Um, and I would encourage parents to, to experiment with talking with your kids about other things and reestablishing a relationship that isn't just about school. Mm-hmm. And that might mean for the next two weeks, you don't talk to your kids about school at all. You just talk to them about other things. And you talk to them about what's going on in your life. And you try to develop a, a two-way interaction rather than a top-down interaction to change the dynamic. And recognize that reestablishing that kind of trust and changing the dynamic it is not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Trust takes time. I love that. So your biggest advice is build trust. And how do we do that? Empathy. And how do we develop empathy is to have conversations around other things not to do with achievement and performance, but yeah. feelings and sentiments in a non-confrontational manner. So whether it could be before bedtime or going for a walk if your kids are older or in my case, when we're driving, so we're not face-to-face and just allowing those moments to happen and keep in mind that it happens over time and not overnight. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Chris, where can our listeners, you're a wealth of knowledge and your blog is incredible. Thank you. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, best place to go is becomingbetter.org. That's my primary website. Um, 
That is where my self-improvement blog lives and information about habit coaching. If you're interested in my education blog, that's at uh, nwtutoring.com. And if you wanted to work with me uh, as a tutor or through just parent coaching, that's uh, southcovetutoring.com. Awesome. And I will include all of those in the episode show notes so our listeners can easily access them. Chris, I want to thank you so much for being here to discuss the power of patience, turning challenges into sustainable growth, and really developing a healthy mindset around daily habits. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. And what your work really empowers us to do is to focus on the journey and not the destination, which I wholeheartedly believe in those baby steps. Yes. So thank you so much again. And I would love to have another conversation with you in the near or distant future. That sounds great. Thank you, Chris, again. And to the listeners, thank you all for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Forush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.